This episode originally aired on July 23rd, 2017. The episode is with hosts Chelsea Slotten, Kirsten Lopez, and Emily Long, as well as guests Jessica Irwin and Deidre Black. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and today I am joined by Emily Long, Jessica Irwin, Kirsten Lopez, and Deidre Black. Ladies, it is so lovely to have you on, as always. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited. So on today's episode, we are going to be discussing the topic of gendered artifacts, why we gender artifacts, what genders we tend to assign to different types of, of artifacts, why that's really problematic, maybe some things we can do about making it um, better, and we'll take it from there. But before we get started, Jessica, I know this is your first time on the show, so I'm hoping that you can just give us you know, a quick 30 seconds to a minute about who you are and where you're coming from, from like an archaeological perspective. Yeah, so I am an underwater archaeologist in the state of South Carolina. And my specialties have been plantation archaeology um, and slave ships. And so I've done a lot of work on figuring out how to give more agency to actual slave traders and slave ship construction, more agency um, to different enslaved individuals and plantations. And so for this episode, particularly, you know, the implied gender bias exists across the maritime landscape really, really heavily. So I'm excited to contribute. Spectacular. Well, we really appreciate uh, having you come on. We're always super excited to have new voices come on and join the show. So when we are talking about gender, we are talking about the sociocultural constructs that people past, present, and all around the world have generally relate to what can be found between someone's legs. Um, although, as I'm sure we will get into a little bit later in the episode, the the idea that there is a binary gender system and there are only two options is a little bit false. It is also false that there are only two options for, you know, the chromosomes that determine what's between your, your legs, whether that's XX or XY. You can also have XXY and all sorts of other things. So, so it's a little bit of a fallacy. But gender is the sociocultural constructs around that and how we treat people differently depending on what we perceive them to be. And when we are talking about gendering artifacts, what we're really talking about is the tendency in archaeology that really goes back to the foundations of archaeology to see certain artifacts as being inherently either male or female. So a common place where we often see this is looking at weapons, which people often assume are are male, that the, the men, you know, know how to use them. And if weapons are found with female human remains, for example, they are often seem to be more symbolic than uh, practical. Some other examples are oftentimes sewing and weaving. Objects are associated with women. Jewelry is often associated with women. Sometimes certain types of pots can be associated with women. So kind of where where do these come from? Why are they problematic? <laughs> and uh, even those major concepts, man the hunter, woman gatherer, that are so pervasive. Yeah. 
I mean, super was pervasive. Was a caregiver. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know there was a major episode um, done uh, with the Women in Archaeology podcast specifically about feminist theory, gender theory, and definitely we can point our listeners to that, but do you want to give um, a quick uh, synopsis of then the idea of giving things an, an artifact, a gender, why that came out? Sure. So, so one of the big pieces that kind of pointed out that we were doing this, um, we, you know, the Royal, we as, as archeologists and that it was such a problem was the piece, um, entitled man, the hunter, woman, the gatherer. And it was looking at particularly, um, going back into the paleo early hominin time periods, how our assumptions about the fact that men were making these tools to hunt and that they were hunting and providing most of, of the food um, and that there would have been nuclear families is incredibly biased towards kind of the ideas that we had of what a ideal in quotation marks family should look like from you know, the Victorian era through the, the 1950s and that it is much more likely that more calories were being provided via gathered food sources than hunted food sources. And that, in fact, women may have been hunting small game and that the family units that existed were probably more likely to have originally been between mothers and children and it wasn't centered around this kind of patriarchal figure. And that was in the, in the seventies and, that wasn't really a baton that anthrop- or that archaeology really started to pick up until the the 1980s and 1990s, and dealing with with some of the issues around around that. So I I now feel like I have spoken for for several minutes, <laughs> um, and I don't know if people have kind of their their favorite stories that exemplify some of the the issues with with this or, or particularly egregious cases of trying to to force a gender on an artifact or um, a group of objects well, or site or anything but i'd love to hear them well uh some for me and i think a lot of other people uh because they're well known in popular culture too are the vikings mm-hmm. um there are so so many cases of there was you know, human skeletal remains, there was a sword, they went, aha, sword, dick, man, boom. No problem. <laughs> That's exactly how it's written in the books, too. Pretty much. <laughs> and now that people are going back and going through the collections of what was collected before, um, do make sure you listen to our Women in Archaeology podcast about using older collections uh, for more on that. But we're doing more research and finding that physically some of these people were women or what we in our society would define as women. You know, they probably had XY chromosome. They probably looked what we may consider a woman. Sorry, XX. The chromosomes were there. There were hips. And yet they were just still called women. They weren't called women. They were called men because there was a sword. Even there's a couple of burials 
where there are other artifacts in Viking archaeology are more commonly found with women, especially some uh, personal decorative artifacts, jewelry and whatnot. And the Victorian men, the 1950s men, all these men archaeologists went so far as to go, oh, this must have been a single man and they needed to give him some women uh, artifacts to bury with him so he could have this representative wife, blah, blah, blah. I was like, or it could be a woman with a sword. No. Yeah. So one of my favorite cases of that, um, and is actually also from the, the Viking period, because as you all should know by now, I'm a Viking archaeologist. <laughs> and Vikings uh, are awesome. Yes. And, you know, the broader media loves to hear about them, and everyone has an idea in their head of what a Viking is. But there was a, a burial at, in England, I believe it was um, Santum Downing. They found some some male artifacts, and or artifacts that they considered to be male, and artifacts that they considered to be female. And this perplexed them so much, and it was originally excavated in the 1800s. Um, but this was so absolutely mind-boggling to them that they just decided that it was clearly a double burial <laughs> and that one of the skeletons had completely decayed and the other one hadn't or that the excavating crew just decided not to excavate the second skeleton or it teleported like I don't really know but Imagine. but the concept of there being male and female are, are objects that are traditionally assumed to be male or, or female in the same grave with only one skeleton was so mind-boggling that they would rather say that poor archaeology was done? <laughs> There's a portal. <laughs> See, my favorite like example is a little different from that because in San Francisco, you know, it was a gold rush boom city so any site that has an excessive amount of quote-unquote female artifacts obviously must have been a house of prostitution you know their females could not have been out there for any other reason or living together separately from men for ever, any other reason it must have been a house of prostitution and don't get me wrong there are really amazing red light district sites and interesting things but to just out the gate oh more than three females must be prostitution. So let's just go with that. Um, and it's not great. You know, it's a it's a really hard assumption to say to say that. So that's my favorite kind of site. One of my favorites is also the Etruscan warrior princess. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's there's a burial found and what was interpreted to be the primary interment. You know, the the big person. It's interpreted as the big man because they had lots of decorations and a big giant sword and some more gracile skeletons next to this person. But then we go back into and we examine the skeleton and it's not necessarily a dude. It's probably a woman. We don't know how she may have identified, but probably a woman. And all of a sudden the interpretations go from this was a warrior, they were very important, they were, you know, prince and conquering all this thing to, oh, uh, it must be a representative sword. 
to represent her place under her father's power. We don't know who this servant is next to her. What? Yeah. Why? And and this also goes the other way. There's several uh, prehistoric burials off the coast of Belize that are burials of high-ranking uh, priests and priestess. And there's one area where there's certain artifacts that we almost always see with uh, what's interpreted as a high priestess and some that are a high priest and that many of the rituals that these two people were involved with were of a binary gender nature. And so whenever we, there was some, we would find these two bodies and this one had these artifacts and this one had that artifacts. But we've gone back in and on one of these pairs of burials, uh, genetically they're both dudes. Hmm. And so that, that's going to, that, you know, cause so much in the question, which we're going to get into a little bit later about, you know, projecting our own cultural gender, you know, identities and biases on things. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just doing such a huge disservice. It does do a huge disservice. And one of the, the common threads, I guess, in the, the stories that I've heard so far, which are great and you know i hadn't heard a lot of them always amazed by how much i learn every time we get together and talk but a lot of what we're talking about are sites where we might be looking at a site that has human remains in it that we can go back and and re-examine and the presence of skeletons that we would you know estimate to be either biologically male or biologically female doesn't always exist. Sometimes we get graves that just have grave goods in them, or sometimes we have areas of the house, um, of a house that may have a particular type of object found in them that could indicate that a a room or space was used in in a particular manner. And it's great when we have these, these human remains that we can look at that can force us to question our, our beliefs and our biases. There are plenty of sites where that's not an option. Yeah, Uh, you're you're right. We have really only been talking about one, really one type site, which is the human remains site. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, which is a a small percentage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, And we need to reinvestigate this in all, in all of our, it's different, iterations i guess and that's a comment on archaeology in general so talking about like on that let's let's move away from the burial sites and gendering of of artifacts and sites and um, activity areas that aren't that have no actual human remains the body part not the things they did yeah and you're right it can become incredibly problematic because yeah you're just then basing specifically on the artifact and then assuming what it was used for and by whom. And I feel like then you're getting into using either historical documentation or um, ethnographies or ethnoarchaeology, and that's a has issues within itself. And I, I guess yeah. while doing CRM, doing a survey and you're recording a site and you just say, it's a habitation over there, they're making pottery over there, they're doing this. 
honestly, we haven't, don't always get into such a deep interpretation of, well, women were over here making the pottery and then men were over here making the tools. But I do think there is that underlying assumption. It's just really not necessarily yep. stated. Especially for, especially for sites that get into a deeper interpretation, uh, especially uh, things that get moved on to artistic representations of workspaces and dioramas. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. always going to be the the woman is sitting passively, like the woman is almost always presented passively doing her activities, and the man is out actively doing their activities. When they're both active, they're both doing things. Mm-hmm. Their activities are overlapping, and we have minuscule, if any, evidence that what we're assigning to either of them was actually yeah. happening that way. Or even if they interpreted their own genders the way we are. Well, I think well, you can also interpret, or you can give an action a gender that has no basis for that gender, um, especially when you go to interpret a site to the public. I know there is a site where the kitchen of this plantation was burned down, uh, probably by an enslaved person there. And the reason that they know that is because an important religious artifact, which is this bead, was found there. So in all of the public interpretation, they're saying a female slave came and burned down the kitchen and she must have been angry. So you're taking this one tiny artifact and yes, beads can be traditionally a female gender object, but it also has religious significance and assuming that, oh, it must have been a woman who did this out of anger or spite when really there's no basis for that kind of interpretation other than a bead equals a female. And and that interpretation even doubles down with the, you know, angry woman of color. Exactly. uh, Trope that we get into. (laughs) Um, What's problematic? Heavily. I will say one thing that I try to do personally is when I'm talking about, you know, people that were here doing stuff, I do try and use the non-gendered they. Um, It's been grammatically correct since at least Chaucer. And yeah. (laughs) And uh, there's a precedent. for it. (laughs) His name is Chaucer and Shakespeare. (laughs) And, uh, and it's, (laughs) And it's also now correct grammar uh, for AP articles. So there's no reason not to use the non-gendered singular they. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. From having having conversations with some people that, um, and and I think that this is actually a a really good thing to to use the term they and to to force some introspection. But I do know that there are people that. Um, you know, they, they hear the term they and they're like, well, but why can't it be male or female? Why don't you know? I want to know, like, what are you trying to suggest? Why do they have to know so bad? I don't, what is it? (laughs) I don't, I mean, I don't think that there's a reason that they need to other than that they are as much of our modern society is very preoccupied with gender and gender roles. And um, it just points out an interesting Well, and I think one important thing to to kind of put in here is the necessity for examples in that it could be either. Um, Because without addressing gender, there is an automatic projection 
that is often termed an androcentric bias to where you have a male persona that is um, from the reader's standpoint uh, projected on to any, most any artifact. And that kind of goes back to, you know, our current assumptions of male, they for jewelry and men for weapons. You get things like stone tools are associated with men. You get, you know, basketry is associated with women and the, the soft things are women and the hard things yes. are men. Yes. Yeah. When, if you are to say, even, you know, we may not know in the past, but we could even just look at our modern record or the ethnographic and historic ethnographic records. We know that that does not hold true all of the time. Mm-hmm. So that there's that's much where, more fluidity than we'd ever assume. Exactly. And so I think it's important to point out like, yeah, this could be, you know, what you're assuming. However, there's a strong suggestion that it could be something else as well. It's known in this, you know, society or that society in society C that it, you know, works differently. So I think pointing out those differences and discussing and naming those genders and those third and fourth genders that are out there, bringing them into the conversation um, is important. Um, although I do know that the the tendency is to just like, we can't say anything, so we're not going to. Um, yes, and that's right. the thing I see a lot. And that's the danger of that is encouraging right. the self-projection of the androcentric, androcentric yeah. bias. Yeah. So I actually and, think that's a really good place to to end for this segment. We're about 20 minutes in. But when we come back, we will continue to discuss um, these modern biases and assumptions. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far tonight, we have been talking about the gendering of artifacts. Um, in the archaeological record and some of the problems with that. And when we left, we were talking about some of the problems with the assumptions that are often made around um, what artifacts belong to to what gender. And, you know, Mother may have always said, remember, assumptions make an ass out of you and me. And this is (laughs) certainly one of those... um, one of those times where that is definitely, definitely possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possible. So I think we're going to keep talking a, a little bit more about those assumptions. And Deidre, I think that you were about to say something as we went to break. Uh, yes, I was. And so as we're moving into this, we also need to think of, you know, there's more than one gender or gender expression. And we also don't want to get into the, the idea of, no genders because that's doing a disservice to everyone and when our people in our society hear no gender they assume male masculine man and if we keep this you know androcentric view of the past moving into the future 
you know, half or more of your population is, is passive, is not doing anything, is coming along for the ride. You know, the, the man's at the head, he's bringing the boat around, he's conquering, he's making discoveries, he's, there's a light bulb, there's a sword, there's a spear, and everyone else is just sort of bringing up the women and the children, bringing up the rear. Mm-hmm. And you're, so you're leaving out all these people. And we're also leaving out that there are more than two genders. There's more than two sexes. And everyone's going to see themselves through their own society and interpret this through, you know, their own views of gender. And so now I think it's time that we troll this along into uh, gender essentialism and the gender binary as we experience in our culture. The hard thing with that is just even looking at some of the reports and articles that come out even now, I feel like gender is a concept that's deeply held on to that it's going to be taking, it's going to take a lot more time and research and effort, especially on the part of everyone to try to get different interpretations out there and concepts, um, more fluid concepts of gender. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I feel like there are so many stories that I've heard where people will have a burial and they'll automatically say, well, this can't be a grave good with a male skeleton. We Here we have a mono, so it's not a grave good. And that this means we don't need to repatriate this one grave good because it can't be because it's a female object. And that gets into the problems where you have some deeply, deeply held assumptions that can harm mm-hmm. the record, that it changes the record altogether because you're taking away something from what was intact. Well, and further than mm-hmm. just making an assumption, I think another problem is that for a lot of people, archaeology and how archaeology works in general is kind of abstract in terms of here you have these clues and this is the interpretation that you come from and it's a lot easier to put it into, you know, black and white, male and female. Exactly. Um, master, servant categories and it causes you know interpretation problems across every archaeological site not just you know a grave good or a prehistoric Mm -hmm. or you know a plantation site just every site in general um because it is our responsibility at some point to disseminate this information you know across the board so yeah it does seem to really get keep coming back to the the powerful and the passive yeah and it's a lot more complicated than that you're which that also gets into the political repercussions of what we do and say and what we present to the public. Yes. And Definitely. You know, so it, that says a lot. It is an interesting thing that, that I've noticed in my work on um, gender and gender bioarchaeology and, and some of the stuff that you saw that was coming out in the late 90s and early 2000s was really trying to to dig down and fairly substantially into the question of, of sex versus gender and it wasn't just in monographs that were trying to discuss sex and gender but it was in journal articles and 
Um, it was it was really great, and there's certainly good work that's still being done. Um, I mean, like Ham Geller is amazing, and I love her work, and I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> Day or night, anytime you want, call me up. But I have seen a trend in journal articles, particularly in bioarchaeology. They'll go, oh yeah, sex and gender, not the same thing. Biological sex, chromosomal, gender, cultural constructions around, oh look, I dealt with sex and gender. And then they kind of move on. Mm-hmm. And and it has become a paragraph that people put into their work because they know that they should. Isn't but they don't actually understand what they're saying. Right, and it's not dealt with like really deeply or intrinsically and it's that that understanding doesn't necessarily make itself known throughout the rest of their you know reporting of results and discussion conclusion analysis all of that yeah um so i think it's an important thing to to continue to to forefront not just in work that is particularly dealing with sex and gender but women are 50 percent of the population um 51 percent actually today historically i've feel like more than 51 percent in a lot of cases yes i'm I'm talking about demographic data from from today i think it's 51 percent but this isn't something that should just be talked about in sex and gender volumes this is something that should be talked about everywhere because it affects all aspects of archaeology and as we were talking about before go ahead um you know a lot of this especially archaeology with the past we still approach it in a very abstract way and it's going to remain abstract if we keep it in the gender and sex focused um, study groups and journals and whatnot. Like we have to pick away and get it, shove it into everything else because it is everywhere else and they need to understand it and they need to get over themselves and at least try to mm. include it in everything else. So one, one quick, um, Thing before uh, Emily takes us to the next step, I wanted to um, mention as far as reporting and uh, other studies that are not dealing directly with gender and including the ability to include gender is is very important, uh, like you're saying. However, I think a lot of people find it very intimidating, and I think it needs to be discussed as part of the uh, a technique for methodology as uh, something in the context of the study that is discussed as deep and often as the environmental context um, as possible. I mean, there are limitations, of course, but you know, you have what a whole section in any um, archaeological report or uh, study at all that has our environmental setting and the history and prehistory. Uh, and the time context within the environment, um, you can, I think, in a similar fashion, um, insert a discussion on the gender of these artifacts as you are discussing the artifacts generally um, throughout the paper. Like, it's still part of it cannot be separated out as something distinct. Um, It needs to kind of continue to flow through the rest of the the report, because as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that stone tools are to be male, 
And so like in the Great Basin and Desert West, that's almost all you find. So the only thing that you're seeing is man, the hunter, and it's assumed that all um, stone tools are male. And on top of that, the only thing that's often recorded in detail are points, which gives the most uh, priority to uh, what many consider to be the male record because they're hunting objects, quote unquote, um, which often they are, you know, arrowheads and spear points tend to be hunting objects, but there's evidence that they were used for other things as well. But then you get things like drills, um, which are fabulous. And I've been really fascinated with these really interestingly shaped burins and other bizarre looking lithics that have been used with plant materials or with fabric or with leathers um, that just, if they're recorded to mention they're usually not photographed as intensively on a regular uh, cultural resource management project as the points themselves. Are you saying we should challenge our, our biases of what these artifacts are used for? Oh, I wouldn't say something like that. <laughs> you mean if we did use wear, they, they could have multiple uses? <laughs> yes, right? Like, just, I... I over the years on projects that is one of my like small obsessions has been uh, accumulating, although I, at this point mostly lost because, you know, phone pictures don't last very long, but accumulating photos of, of sort of interesting looking like tools that are not your regular, just cutting, um, not your typical utilized flake. It's something that's a little bit different or odd looking. And I'm like, I bet. <laughs> because in this region that I work in, there's no ceramics. So 90% of everything made is perishable, which is often considered women's work. And we, you know, we've discussed the issue a little bit with that assumption because if, if the only thing men are making are stone tools and then even that's kind of, you know, they're not doing much. <laughs> if we're going to project what's normally assumed, on a hunter-gathering society, you're going to have in that, you know, area, woman the gatherer is doing everything, <laughs> and then, you know, the men are making their spear points and being gone and then coming back, and it's it's very problematic. In if you sit back and really kind of think about what the assumptions are and where that takes you if you follow through the the, the concept, um, but again. In the West here, we have, in many cases, a fabulous ethnographic record that, and even modern tribes that, you know, there are men weavers. Some of the best known weavers in, uh, basketry weavers in the West are men. Um, and some of that has to do with, you know, the uh, schools and our more recent history um, with the tribes. But it's, you know, we can, if we open our eyes, we can see that what our assumptions are don't hold up. One part of the whole issue, too, with assumptions and whatnot, I think really has to do with education and how archaeologists are educated um, in terms of different kinds of theories, different kinds of interpretations. And that will guide then how we write and how we present information. And I was wondering uh, for all of you, whether or not you were 
exposed at least an undergrad much to alternate interpretations beyond just you know your archaeological theory class and you're told yeah there's this thing called you know feminist archaeology moving on you know it's all part of post-processualism moving on because i honestly i wasn't exposed too much until graduate school about bigger concepts and i remember questioning an undergrad like well why do you say this was only men or why only this? Because it seems more in your traditional scientific approach, you can't tell gender and you can't go into these deeper interpretations and so on. It's just not questioned. So I didn't know about your experience in education. Did you experience that as well? Or did you get a a broader uh, education in terms of gender and interpreting gender? Uh, well, for me, I did my undergraduate in the late 1990s, um, and we didn't do a lot of theory in the archaeology-specific classes. Um, the theory was more for the anthropology, mm-hmm. and um, my uh, anthropology professors, I will say several of them, had uh, a lot of, of basis, their, their academic genealogy went back to you know benedict and uh crober and those folks Mm -hmm. and and so they did you know get into this some and but also at the time as far as what you were having your undergrads read it wasn't really big and super big into the undergrads at least in the south central united states uh public university in the 90s Mm-hmm. Um, getting into graduate school, uh, which I did in the mid oddies, um, we did a whole lot more theory, uh, not just for the graduate class, but you know, almost all of the people I was in graduate school also TA'd the undergraduate classes, including the theory class. And the theory class did get into a little bit of the feminist archaeology. Uh, feminist uh, anthropological theory uh the main two teachers of the the undergraduate uh theory class were both dudes and one of them uh loves uh marxist anthropological theory oh that's awesome so we got uh which i had been a little bit exposed to an undergrad but this guy like it was his favorite thing to talk about (laughs) um so I got that into there, but they they seemed a little skittish to actually go, boom, feminism, feminist archaeology, feminist anthropological theory. What are we talking about? Let's challenge, like, they'll, they'll challenge the class binary, but not the gender binary necessarily. Mm-hmm. So there doesn't seem much exposure in your case, too, where right. it's just like... It just really, it wasn't even on the radar. It's not like we're not even, ta- we we don't talk it's, about that. It's just, it's not on the radar. It's a, Why would you even It's a specialty it? class. It's yeah, not it part of your general be. education. It's a specialty class. Yeah, I that's a big problem. A little differently, <laughs> mm-hmm. I went to undergrad in the Bay Area of California, so it's a whole different kind of demographic of the people who end up there. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, yeah. In the anthropology courses and the theory courses, I had some wonderful, very, very feminist teachers, uh, well, professors, specifically who 
we're working on kind of the feminist side of anthropological questions in a cultural sense. Whereas that archaeology teachers, it just wasn't a, a subject to be broached. It wasn't brought up in method theory. Um, and that includes, which looking back in retrospect after going to graduate school and working professionally, a professor who specialized in, you know, Polynesia, Oceania, Samoa. Um, so the fact that we never spoke about, you know, gender past being binary kind of blows my mind at this point. Um, but, you know, it's a different kind of environment. So especially how how uh, gender is expressed throughout Oceania. Yeah, that's unfortunate that you didn't get that exposure. I think that there also, though, it kind of goes back is some fear of using archaeological context to make gender assumptions. So again, it's just easier to fall into the binary stance. But the anthropologists were amazing. And apparently I'm very lucky. I didn't really realize it wasn't, you know, the norm. (laughs) So Um, I I, I did have my one grad school prof who who taught undergrads that she came out of uh, the San Diego area. And sometimes things would get brought up in her undergraduate class, and she'd be like, why? Why? <laughs> why? She was the sort of professor that would be reading something out of the book, and she's like, uh, no, that's stupid. <laughs> this is, don't do that. That's a bad interpretation. Their data are bad, and they should feel bad. So it's like so, some good areas, good push towards right. having a broader knowledge base and trying to expose young minds to many different interpretations or the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I guess the big push should be is for archaeologists like us and for professors and whatnot. Like I know I did, I did this for my class when teaching theory was just like, all right, guys, keep in mind, this is a construct. Keep in mind, we have to challenge these views. So I guess it's just something we got to push more and more and more. So as an undergrad, I had a very different experience, actually. I had a professor, um, uh, Madonna Moss, who at the University of Oregon, and she, I took a class, actually, it was gender and archaeology, um, specifically as an undergrad student. Um, so jealous. was amazing. I mean... It, I was like, this is great. This is, it just seemed very natural. And yeah, now uh, being in grad school, I'm like, wait, no, no one had this. It, it was this really as odd as it sounds. So I'm kind of surprised that it's not more common. Um, and I mean, there was a lot of discussion on indigenous archaeology, um, which is becoming more and more of a hot topic in recent years as well. Um, but the, I mean, one of the best exercises we had was a little project of flipping through old Nat Geos and picking apart that man, the hunter, woman, the gatherer, and using, um, who, what article was that? I don't know if it was Jiro um, or Conkey, but one of them had an early article in the early 80s that discussed um, I believe it was. I could be totally off base because I couldn't find the article before we started. Um, 
but it was basically that it was a whole article on picking apart National Geographic for uh, the illustrations like Deidre, like you were talking about earlier uh, on these and it's something that I know after that article was released, I want to say it may have been even later. Um, between that and the, the other buildup from other angles of uh, cultural anthropology, uh, they eventually, this was of course before the more recent bio, um, had attempted to correct a lot of that. And so they would try and get photography of men holding children in their um, the cultural uh, um, or ethnographic uh, photo projects. Uh, when it cool. came to archaeology, they tried yeah. to diversify the way we At one point, it was really neat because National Geographic had decided to start diversifying the way that gender was portrayed. So using um, male photographs or photographs of men holding children um, in cultural contexts, you had more illustrations. I want to say the the um, was sometime in the next or in the last five years or so. There was a um, a magazine edition that focused on Cahokia, and there was the the illustrations and the uh, depictions were a lot more diversified in the way that gender was at least in regard to the artifacts and how they were used, was not as strongly, you know, you didn't have the men carrying the deer in the foreground and then the women's backs to the illustrator because they were grinding corn or hide or whatever. So there's there's a lot of interesting, that article had gone over like body language and illustrations and kind of the, the pulling apart the meanings and the the projections of, of cultural norms and cultural ideologies, mostly. It's not even a cultural norm, to That's be honest. That's really cool. Uh, that that article really seemed to challenge viewpoints and had a really good response. Yeah, but, so... It's neat. Yeah, so <laughs> that is um, probably a good place to end for our this 20-minute uh, segment. We ran over a couple minutes. Um, that's fine. But when we come back, we will talk a little bit more about some of the other things we can do um, to try and help change um, perceptions of, of women and gender in the archaeological record um, and other ways that it's gotten better. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes interested in supporting the podcast from the website you can check out our patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast we can give you a cool sticker in return again thank you for listening hello and welcome back to the women in archaeology podcast on today's episode we've been discussing the sometimes problematic gendering of artifacts and when we left, Deidre actually had a, a comment that she wanted to make. So we're just going to kick it off right there. Okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm hearing about, you know, other people's, you know, uh, feminist archaeology, gender and archaeology experiences. And it seems that it's so very, very small when this should be a 
not only part of base archaeology, this needs to be a bigger part of general education. I shouldn't have to have to seek out, you know, gender articles on gender bias and in archaeological interpretation. It should be part of the mainstream class. You know, I should have to go, oh, this one person had this great class. I had so many great archaeology professors from so many different academic genealogies. I had people of different genders teaching my archaeology classes, my anthropology classes, and I didn't get this. And I should. There's no reason I shouldn't, even as an aside, like, hey, challenge your biases, boys and girls, and everyone else involved. But we can't do that just in archaeology. We maybe can start with archaeology, but we're so small part uh, of the world, even the academic world, and people are coming to archaeology from the other parts. We you know, might move, start, start the movement here, but we need to get people all the way down the education line, all the, across society to acknowledge you know, gender biases and the, the great, wonderful spectrum of gender and, uh, and that artifacts are not gendered before we can even move this forward. I think that's one of the problems that we're running into is that we don't have, as specialists, we don't have good exposure to these theories without really seeking them out. And even then, it's a pain in the butt. It really is. You're right. Well, you are and, totally right. The fact yeah. that it's even viewed as a specialty is, is just a huge problem. Yeah. Because it shouldn't be, like, like you said, something that you have to seek out. It should just be something that is acknowledged and addressed and that, you know, everyone is, is at least aware that it's a thing that they should be talking about. I mean, everyone's going to have different opinions because everyone has different opinions. We can't really get over that. Uh, right. I mean, why why do we get so much, you know, here's some useware interpretation of this projectile point, and here's how you would source this projectile point, here's how you would source this clay. What about extremely gravid females in a hunter-gatherer society when it's time to move with the seasons? Why aren't we talking about this? Well, we know why, but we need to get it <laughs> out there. <laughs> Yeah. It needs to be part of the general education. I mean, not just archaeology, not just anthropology, not just academia. Yeah. Well, and that gets back to that was brought up earlier. I think it was Emily that was talking about education because feminism to most of the public is anti-man. And it's, it's not. It's a theory of anti-man. And it's not. Exactly. It is not. That is like the last thing it is. So this is where you get into um, things in early education, like high school, middle school, to where these theories are presented incorrectly. These ideas that are supposed to be more equalizing are presented as an opposition, when in fact it is not. I remember having an, a, an, a stupid Facebook argument with a woman who was anti-feminist because her thought was it prevented her, she said, because I want to be able to stay home with my kids. I said, that's fine. Feminism actually gives you, the, makes it so that the idea is that you have a choice. Mm -hmm. Because her thing was like, I want, you know, I don't want my, uh, to be told I have to go work and I can't stay home with my kids, but I want my daughter to be able to have the choice to have kids or not. And I'm like, well, that sounds like a feminist stance if I ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> 
That's where I'm like. Or, or, my, or my friend Alfred, who's a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. Why should this be so weird? It and shouldn't be. It's just. He, ha- he has this really, and, you know, things come up to him, and people are either, oh, so when are you rejoining the workforce? How's your unemployment going? Is half of it and half, and the other half is, oh, you're a man doing a traditionally feminine thing. <sighs> you're so brave. He's like, I'm a parent. <laughs> yeah like when people ask if your husband is babysitting that one kills oh, me right. yeah. mm-hmm. um, I, I have good help from my friend Alfred's little daughter because whenever people come up to, to that he does squash it he's like I'm a parent this is a thing parents do that's mm-hmm. awesome well it gets back to just the fact that some people just think it's too hard I guess to think about I don't know, women in the archaeological record? (laughs) Or it's like, it's too much of a jump if people are still thinking like, oh, is your husband babysitting tonight? Ha 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 ha. And it's like, no. Yeah. No. Is Um, he babysitting and and making pottery? (laughs) Well, and the first time I'm wrong as well, but every case study that I've ever looked at academically in a classroom setting, we have spent at least a few minutes talking about ethnocentrism and examining that in that article so why can't we also just take a minute to sit there and also examine gender bias you know Mm -hmm. if you have the time to examine the ethnocentrism you have there's no reason that you don't have time to examine this as well definitely and going from there it sounds like there are quite a few issues not only with gender bias and the archaeological record but then extending even further into preservation bias what do we actually preserve um what do we actually research and uh chelsea i know you wanted to get into that yeah so so some of that and i'm gonna kind of circle us back around to to vikings because that's my area (laughs) circle around in a boat ah yeah um you know but but you do have have issues that has been pointed out that like swords are generally pretty big Axes are pretty big, and if we are going to assume that those those are male, those are also going to be, you know, recognizable as signs of status in the archaeological record. You're going to find them. Um, they're big. They're really hard to miss. Like if you have an archaeologist who can identify that there's like a three foot sword in a grave, like you should probably <laughs> find yourself another archaeologist. There's a large toothpick. going back to some of the more things that we think might be traditional feminine objects um some of them are smaller you know jewelry is is often smaller than swords um you know and it's might not be as well preserved as well um could be easier to miss i know i have a a friend who, whenever she runs an excavation, she always says that there's a prize for the person who finds the most beads, even if she knows that there's probably not going to be any beads found at this site. But because <laughs> she wants people to pay enough attention that they could find, you know, beads that are like, you know, seed bead size, that really tiny, yeah. mm-hmm. tiny beads. Um, but, and if it's uh, CRM, they're going, work faster, but slower. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Work faster, but <laughs> intelligently. Yeah. So you, you, know, you, you could miss some of the smaller things. You also have textiles that mm. often don't preserve particularly well. 
Um, there are also, you know, wooden objects. The the Oseberg ship is a great example of this. There are tons of wooden objects that survived there, and including, you know, some animal heads that they think may have been used in a, in processionals um, and other things. But that is really an extraordinary Viking find. And if you don't know about it, you should check it out. Is it the the Oseberg where we have a a woman ship burial, but somehow she's not a chieftain? Yes, the it is the most prestigious burial from the viking age from people of either biological sex that has ever been found and somehow people try and dismiss the fact that she could have been a chieftain or could have been important or you know and they, they try and give her a different status than oh, similar she's a princess with no uh, no power she's she's a yeah. princess or she is a priestess or you know she was the Burial mound was on a a plane rather than like up in the, in the mountains. So clearly she was on a plane, so she couldn't have been important. Except that plane was a major waterway, and the mound is large enough that everyone on the plane would have been able to see the mound, and it would have been incredibly. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Wait, what are we arguing? <laughs> Preservation bias. Um, but but you have these wood artifacts that you know might not that did survive in, in the Oseberg burial that may not have survived in, in other burials, um, which is a big problem because. And and these are all big things. Yeah. We, we could also say that some of our focus is because our, our methods that we're taught are come from checking out these big phallic showy objects (laughs) and not the everyday data. Um, I've talked with an archaeologist and she takes soul samples and extracts hair DNA from the various animals and people that were in that area. It was like, <laughs> blow my mind when I saw it. But then I was like, why should this blow up my people are here? They left stuff. People shed, animals shed. It shouldn't be mind blowing that we can extract this little tiny data. Like, the way we gather our data even is biased against the smaller everyday objects. And it's in those smaller everyday objects that we get the story of people. Mm-hmm. Well, and also how money is allocated in lab yeah. settings. I know of one instance where, you know, there are a lot of artifacts and granted underwater conservation is a lot, can be a lot more expensive. But the concretions that have, you know, pins, beads, the tiny things are on the very bottom of the list of the things that are going to be conserved. There's at least five muskets ahead of that. With all likelihood, those muskets are not going to tell us as much information as the beads and the pins and the tiny things are going to, but they're exciting and they're flashy and, you know, it's sexy. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) so it's a whole, you know, the funding becomes an issue. The, space allocated becomes an issue the time allotment becomes an issue all based on that these male gendered artifacts are more important or are going to tell us more when that's inherently not true is that true for basketry textiles and whatnot as well i'm not as familiar with uh, museum curation and how that all pans out yeah it is very a very specialized specialization and i know that's a silly (laughs) phrase but like there are very few people who can and do do such things. Um, it's 
yeah, it's very seldomly studied. It is generally difficult to find. There are only a few contexts that preserve them regularly and steadily. That would be like cave, dry cave contexts is a lot of the work, um, the material that I work with. Um, so that's, that's definitely one. And you don't see that on the East Coast. Um, in that region, you generally get wet sites occasionally and same with the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then in the Southeast, you get clay impressions, which are helpful and you get those in Europe. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to look at these things, but they are similarly not prioritized, like Jessica was saying, for funding. Um, rare places uh, know how to preserve them is another thing because it is such a unique specialization. Um, but aside from even just basketry and textiles, you have other things like cordage, and um, sinew, which are used for everything else. So sites like Monte Verde um, in Chile is an amazing, fabulous, probably the sexiest site ever, you know? Um, and close behind is this new site in uh, BC, which is it dates to a similar time range. And they have this deep time um, and perishables. And it's interesting looking at the Monte Verde side, if you take away the perishables, the lithics are entirely unimpressive and would not be enough to convince that it's even a site. Um, they're underwhelming uh, stone tools, <laughs> one could say, and there's no points, there's no point types to identify at the site. So if they're all you know, flake stone tools, they're all um, cobbles and um, like a chipped pebble um, types of pieces. But what, you know, the stuff that sells it are the tent stakes that are still there. It's a collapsed house with like wood beams and um, like reserves of different types of plants for basketry or for textiles that were put aside. I mean, there's the, the stuff that that preserved and really kind of sold the site and put the nail in the coffin for the pre-Clovis stuff is, is amazing. It was done so long ago and it's so widely accepted, but in every intro class, it's kind of like, yeah, there's this site and down in Chile and we're not sure how it got there, but nothing's, you know, older than Clovis. At least, you know, that's how it was about 10 years ago or five years ago or three even. Now it's kind of, much more well accepted that there is other stuff, but it's difficult to find. So right. with the regions where I have like a lot of dry caves and I have perishable stuff, yeah. the rest of the, that the, stuff is gone and the rest of the region, if it's not yeah. in that cave context. The region I've done most, a lot of work in, there, there's a lot of the dry caves and you're absolutely right with the preservation. There's hardly any stone tools or even bones in those, uh, some of these are uh, deposition sites and some of them were living sites, mm -hmm. but the other stuff is so cool. There's one cave and there's just tons of children's shoes, prehistoric <laughs> children's shoes, oh, that's to the point where we can do a typology. Oh my God. I know, it's amazing. Thanks. But that, you know, that gets into the archaeology of children. Why are these children's shoes here? Why is there just one shoe here? Are these only children's shoes? Are the adult shoes the same? Do you ever find a child's shoe, pair of shoes, 
you always find one, right? Like on the sidewalk. And well, in in historic context, I found the closest I found to a pair of children's shoes was one and a half children's shoes. <laughs> yeah, it seems to always go back to what are the underrepresented things being not being studied. So women, children, where, where, where are your women? Where are your elderly? Mm-hmm. I mean, if someone can isn't doing a lot of walking, they're not out hunting your mammoth, but I bet they make a kick-ass basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the archaeology of elderly individuals Age. is yeah. fascinating and under-studied as well. And plays very much into gender because our perceptions of gender, you know, change with aging uh, of ourselves and of others. And all of this context, preservation, learn it, do it, <laughs> think about it, you know? Right. Yeah. Really, yeah. we're just trying to, to set everyone else up for future research projects. You need to, <laughs> we've got ideas. <laughs> Email I, us, I we'll give you topics. And <laughs> I know what age I am and what I've experienced and what I'm going to have the opportunities to do, maybe, if I'm lucky. But if I can start changing people's minds that are coming up and go, hey, look at everybody. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to look at everybody. Not 50%, not 10%. Everybody. That's how in my last lecture for the semester, it's like, look at everybody, dumbass. Because <laughs> yeah. right, just think of it, if if you are interpreting projectile points as a male activity, it isn't going to be an able-bodied, you know, male of what we would consider working age. You know, they're post-pubescent. They may have fathered children. How much of the population is that? What ten percent, maybe? If you're lucky, considering people have a tendency to fall off of cliffs and get sick. You're right. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. We're count, discounting so many people who are able so to... A woman's not going to wait around for a guy to be like, I need a scraper, but he's off doing something. I'm just going to oh. sit here and wait. <laughs> oh, who is yeah. me? No, she's going to make a damn scraper. Exactly. So, or a beautiful uh, clothes point. That is uh, <laughs> probably a, a good point to say we are coming up again on the last um the end of our last segment um look at everyone dumbass seems like a great (laughs) ending point but if anyone has any final thoughts on the matter that they're just dying to share Uh, i have a a quick one yeah of course um when looking at gender and and looking at gendering artifacts when you study this, when you teach this, when you realize this, you're not just saying, look at the women. What you're really doing is saying, look at everybody. Look at the people that are, that are gender nonconforming. Look at the people that are of different genders. Look at the people that are old. Look at the people that are young. And that's what this gets down to. Don't just look at this very small you know, representative sample that's not representative of the population. Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly. why you have to think about gendering artifacts and gendering archaeology. Nice. Just to kind of go off of that, you know, if you're going to go ahead and put your Western bias on a site, just do it all the way. Like, who's important to you? Is your mom important to you? How about your sister or your brother or your grandma and grandpa? Maybe think about where they would be in context of the civilization or the period that you're looking at, because 
we all know that the world doesn't roll around us. So if we're going to put our perspective on a site, like, you know, if you're going to do it wrong, do it all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just run with it. (laughs) Yeah. I, I definitely want to add, I guess the only closing thoughts I have is, is thinking about that, um, what uh, Linda Hercombe has termed the missing majority, you know, especially in places where you have horrendous preservation bias, um, or even just like, you know, in a lot of the the Northwestish area, there's no, like I said earlier, there's no ceramics. So what do you have? (laughs) Lithics. Um, and how, you know, what are we not seeing? Think about what you're not seeing. Think about what may be seen with what we have. We have this assumption that all stone tools are for the processing of animals and hide and, um, you know, what else could be seen here? What other things are we not looking at? Um, and just reanalyze existing collections, uh, revisit old sites and, um, you know, just don't assume that what's been written is written in stone. I mean, if we've learned anything from post-processualism is that there's many stories out there. Um, children, elderly, um, any, you know, inclusion of uh, differently abled, uh, you have as well as gender non-conforming, you have just this wide variety that isn't seen or looked at. Um, And even just asking the question of what might this look like in this region, this context, this culture, is a big step forward. For for sure. And I would like to add to the um, comment about if you're going to go with your biases, really go with your biases, which, you know, we all have them. identify yourself when when you're writing so that whoever is trying to to look at your work at at a later date knows you know I'm a feminist bioarchaeologist or uh, I am a creationist or and they can decide for themselves whether or not or to what degree they think your biases uh, impacted your work Mm mm-hmm Exactly. That's a really good so, point. Self-identify your biases, mm-hmm. which will also make you a better archaeologist because as you're aware of them, you can start to address the issues that they can cause. Mm-hmm. And that makes you a better person, too. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Believe it or not, it's not all about archaeology, guys. <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the, the end of our episode um ladies thank you so much for joining me it is always an absolute pleasure and Uh yeah um and for for the listeners if you have any questions about tonight's episode or you want to get in touch with any of us moving forward about what we've talked about we can always be reached at the women in archaeology at gmail.com and we will put that that link in the show notes bye Bye. 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 Bye.